Good morning, family. It's good to be together this morning. Um, it's good to gather already remembering the faithfulness and kindness of our God. And then we come to a passage like this where uh, Jesus uses parable to illustrate his faithfulness and his kindness and his goodness towards a people that didn't deserve that. And so today we get to remember that. Um, but I just wanted to set the scene because maybe, maybe we forgot, um, maybe we haven't been here, but Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? This is the holy place of the people of Israel. God had called and, and set this place aside, and he had set aside a place within that city, the temple. And that temple was where uh, God's people would come to worship God. And so if you remember, um, Jesus came into that temple. And he saw that in that temple something was going on other than the true and honorable worship of God. And so he began to uh, flip tables and disturb what was going on there to draw them, to, to give them a, a way to repent of the things that they had been doing. Well, um, last week we looked at verses 27 through 33 of Mark 11, and we saw that that really upset the, the religious authorities of the time. And so they come to Jesus, and, and we've seen throughout Mark's gospel that the 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 religious authorities, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, there's a lot of different people. And when, when their power and their authority gets challenged, they rise up. They rise up and they question Jesus. Rather than hearing what he's saying, submitting to it, repenting, which is the story of the people of God for all of creation. That they would mess up because they're sinners like you and I. But then God would come and he would remind them and they would repent and they would ask for forgiveness. And he would be faithful and just to forgive them of their sins. But these people had power. They had authority. They didn't want to give that power and authority up. So they plot to kill Jesus. And one of the ways that they do it is they try to challenge his authority in the midst of the temple saying, who sent you? And if you remember, Jesus doesn't give them an answer. He actually gives them a question back. He asks them about the baptism of John. John was the prophet that came before Jesus in Jesus' lifetime, pointing people to the one who would come. That, that he said he couldn't even untie his, his shoelaces. This is the Lamb of God, the one who has come to take away the sins of the earth. And so John made that proclamation about Jesus. And so Jesus circles back and he asks these, these religious leaders, well, who, who did John come from? Like, if you want to know who I came from, who did John come from? And they know that if they answer wrong, they're either going to lose power or they're going to be killed. And so they don't answer. They say, we, we don't have an answer for you. And Jesus says, well, then I, I'm not going to answer your question. All right, so that's where we're left at in the story. Enter in chapter 12, and Jesus begins to tell them a parable. Now, we can connect these two things and realize right away Jesus is answering their question. He didn't leave it unanswered. He answers it in a different way, and he answers it in a parable. And so what we need today is, is we're not, uh, most of us probably don't have a vineyard in our backyard. Most of us are not all that familiar with first century uh, Judaism. We may not be all that familiar with the temple, but hopefully we're we're really familiar with God's Word. 
And so as, as Jesus begins to speak of the parable, we're going to see how that recalls God's faithfulness throughout all of Scripture. Even this idea of uh, God being this good vineyard owner is, all, is a reference back to Isaiah. And so all of Scripture points to what Jesus is saying, and he uses it. And so I pray that today, whether we are familiar with that place, we don't have to be. Like this is God's living word to us. Through thousands of years, it's spoken to us. It's changed us by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of every believer. It makes us into who He has called us to be. And so I pray that He would do that again today. Will you pray with me? God, we thank You so much. You are kind. You are faithful. You are good. And yet we struggle. We struggle to believe that. On a consistent basis, we struggle to believe that, some of us at all. And so, Lord, we would ask and we would beg that you would change us, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see today. God, we thank you for the, your spirit that lives and dwells inside of us who are in Christ, Lord. That, that the same spirit that caused Mark to write these things down is the same spirit that lives in us, giving us ears to hear and helping us to understand what Jesus is saying. And so, Lord, would you be glorified today? And would part of that glorifying the Son be the changing of His people, the transforming of our hearts, our actions, our words, our thoughts, May we find great joy in you today. May we remember the Son who was sent. God, you're good and kind and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, if you have your Bible, if it's a, a physical copy, keep your finger in Mark 12. Go ahead and find Isaiah 5. It's in the middle. All right? So, if you open to the middle, sometimes you'll open right to Psalms or sometimes to Jeremiah. And if you just go a little bit towards the back after that, you'll find Isaiah. Isaiah 5. Okay? We're going to be in, in Mark 12 and Isaiah 5 today. And you're going to want to be able to, to flip back and forth between those. So if you've got it on your phone, you should be able to, to go back and forth pretty easily. And same thing with a physical copy. We have to go there because, listen, as the religious leaders are hearing Jesus begin this parable, it's registering in their hearts and minds right away, Isaiah 5. These, the, the religious leaders, they're, they're, they're learned in these things. They've spent their whole life memorizing Scripture. They've spent their whole life uh, remembering the, the history of the Jewish people and what God has done. And so as soon as Jesus begins and he began to speak to them in parables, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. As they hear this, it resonates with Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, 1 through 4, follow along as I read. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? A couple things we're going to look at today. The compassion of the vineyard owner. And we're going to see it in a couple different ways. Both his compassion in creation, like as he formed this vineyard and made it, it's beautiful. We're going to see his compassion in going to the, the tenants that were supposed to be in charge of it and continually calling them to a place of repentance and forbearing their sin, their evil. We're also going to see that he is a righteous judge who judges with righteousness and severity. And finally, we're going to see the glory of the sun. So as we're walking through these things, keep, keep those kind of points in mind because I think they, they really draw us into the story today. The compassionate creator. Do you see the care, the precision, the intentionality that this uh, vineyard owner has as he creates the vineyard? Right? He didn't just plant the vine and leave it. He plants the vine. He clears the stones. He digs the holes. He creates the well. He puts a watchtower in the midst of it. And then he prepares to receive the fruit of that with a wine vat and a wine press. Listen, this is going to be a really good thing. This vineyard is going to grow and it's going to produce this wine that is good and beautiful and tasty. And that's the, the idea and the intent that the, that the creator of the vineyard has. And if you haven't made the connection yet, Jesus is telling this story... And he's portraying God as this vineyard owner. And his people are the vine. And so this morning, I just I want us to rest there. Like remembering, as, anytime it talks about the vineyard owner, we're talking about God the Father, the Creator. See, there's echoes here of God's precision and His exactness in creation. And, and also, beyond creation... Even to the giving of the law. Like you get into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you're like, man, this is really detailed stuff. And some of us only get, like we get Genesis, Exodus, we're starting our yearly Bible reading plan and it's awesome and we're going well. And then we get to Leviticus and we're like, whoa, man, this bogs me down some. But the beauty of it is if we have that in all of the context of Scripture, we're like, man, God cares about even the smallest details when it comes to his holiness, when it comes to his people and how they should live. He cares about the minute stuff, the stuff we take for granted. That's the kind of God we're talking about. And and so when we look at this, this vineyard owner and he's creating the vineyard, he cares about the details. And so even as in our culture, some of those details are challenged. Like we have to take God's word and we have to say, if that's what you're saying, God, then I've got to believe it. I've got to rest there in His creation. You see, He created with this inherent beauty in humanity. What did He say? He, he, he made the, the, the moon and the stars. He made the sun. He made the earth and the land. He made the waters He made all the creatures in him, and after each one of those things, he said it was good. And then he said, let's make man in our own image. 
In the image of God, He created us. And then He said, it's very good. There's something to God's creation and the detail that He takes and the care that He takes in creating. You see, it was a, a meticulous creation and it was perfect. And then even after sin, right, even after those beautiful creations rebelled against them in their heart, rebelled against Him in their heart, He still cared enough to go into detail about what does it look like. He gave us the law to show us again what beauty would look like. What would it look like to have a life that truly honors God in everything that we say and do and truly cares about people, all people. That's what He points us to. You see, when you love something, you take great care in forming it and intending to it. Some of you have pets. You didn't form them. You didn't create them. But you take great care in tending to them. Some of you are artists. And when you, when you build something or create something, you, you care about the details. Some of you are parents. And you know, like, the, those children that you have, you care about their forming and how they're growing. When we love something, we care and we tend to it. And that's what you see in both the passage in Isaiah 5 with the vineyard owner and how he has built this vineyard. And you see it in Mark 12. Mark 12, 1 says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Even here, you're, you're like, yeah, he leased it to tenants and then went away. Does he really care? No, he cares. Again, echoes of creation. What was God's first commissioning to mankind? Right? In Genesis, God comes to His people and He blessed them. And God said in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God had always invited to participate. That creation, that very good thing that He made, He invited to participate in ruling and reigning in being authority. And even after they, they blew it, even after they sinned and rebelled against Him, He comes again and He establishes this beautiful kingdom, this purchased people, the nation of Israel that He is going to invest in and care for and tend to. And He raises up the religious leaders and He tells them, this is what perfection looks like. You need to walk in this. And even when you fail, you walk in repentance saying, God, I, I failed to walk in what You've called me to. And then there were sacrifices made. And the details of the sacrifice. Like God cares. Always has. I love that not only was He compassionate in creating the vineyard, but He's compassionate in His long-suffering, in His forbearing with an evil and rebellious people as they tend to that vineyard. After going to great extent and care to create this vineyard, God invited His people to participate in its tending. Jesus says He leased it to the tenants and went into another city, another country. And, and so we recall God's invitation to mankind to rule and reign with Him, to have dominion with Him, to be with Him. And we see how He's done it throughout the nation of Israel, working with in and through them to establish a people 
A people that would be a light and a testimony to other peoples around them. Not, not simply for their sake, but for the sake of the nations. I think sometimes I lose sight of that. Like I think that, that there's something special about the Israelites and that doesn't seem fair. And it's like, man, that, God, how could you just choose to do that for one particular people? But the reality is that God chose to do that through his people for the sake of the nations. And I'm not saying that he doesn't get to choose. He does. He is God. He's the only one that gets to do that. But to rest in that and say, you know what? The the reason that God is tending to this people, the reason that he cares so much is because that proclamation needs to go out to all peoples to see this chosen people. And so they continued to rebel. If you know the history of Jerusalem, uh, the, the history of the Jews and the Israelite people, they fail over and over and over and over. God's given them what it looks like to walk in his beauty, in his holiness, in his righteousness, and they fail. And so what God would do is he would send prophets to first and foremost point out the failure, point out where they had gone wrong. Many of these messages are messages of of woe to you. And we don't like those messages. We don't like the woe to you. You need a change. There's something wrong with what you're doing. And yet, that is kindness of God, that He would come, that He would not just immediately destroy us, but He would come and call us to repentance and change. And He did it over and over. Well, if you go back to Mark, Mark 2, when the season came, He sent a servant to the tenants to get get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took Him and beat Him and sent Him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. You see, the, the prophets weren't always recognized for being sent from God. And even when they were, they usually had a harsh uh, word from the Lord, a, a word of correction, and they were uh, beaten, they were persecuted, they were called liars. They were exiled and sent out of the cities because no one wanted to hear their voices. One good example is uh, Elijah. Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 1-3, Ahab tells Jezebel what Elijah had done. See, he had just called all the prophets of Baal, these false prophets, to, to, to a challenge. And, and maybe you know the story, but... Um, he, he said, listen, you guys do whatever you want. Set up the altar. I'm going to set up my altar. We'll pray to God. Whoever consumes the sacrifice by fire, that, that one is God. And they had tons of prophets, and they were doing all these crazy things. But, and then Elijah actually uh, mocks them and jeers them some. And then Elijah, to just, to just make things even more evident, tells them to pour water on the, on the altar to, to Yahweh God. And then he calls down fire from heaven as he prays to God and the the altar is consumed and everything's consumed. And so then he goes and says, declares that they're false prophets, has them killed. And so now this is King Ahab and he's telling Jezebel all that Elijah has done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. 
Listen, like we, we think that if we just saw some of these things, we would repent. Before we take that high road thinking that um, that's true, like if God would just show me, consume something with fire, I would believe it. We have tons of stories in the Bible where a hardened heart, even after a miracle is done, will not repent, will not hear. So today, if you hear, it's because the kindness of God has given you ears to hear. It's because he's doing something in your life. He's changing you. He's, he's giving you a desire to walk in repentance. And so today, I pray that that would be true for us. That was one prophet. Uh, and it says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. See, so this prophet is threatened, and he runs away. But we have an even more timely prophet in the book of Mark. We have John the Baptist. And what happened to John the Baptist? Mark 6, 25-28. Remember, Mark's coming with a, with a declaration that you need to repent and be baptized. Repent of the way that you're living. The things that you're doing. Turn back to God. In Mark 6, 25 and 28, John's arrested in jail. And the wife of the king comes to uh, the king and says, She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Gruesome. Harsh. And this is how we've, this is how the religious authorities, like the king, this is the king of the Jews, like the king of Israel. Now he's a puppet king, and yet this king, who should be standing up for the declaration and the law of God, the word of God, instead goes and has the one who gives that word killed. And so you see it in Mark in this passage, in the parable. Like this is, this is what Jesus is saying, and all of it has played out just like he said. The kindness of God in calling people to repentance, and yet the servants are rejected. Not only are they rejected, but they're beaten. And not only are they beaten, but they're killed. Verse 5, And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Hebrews actually sums it up for us as, as the author reminds the people of God what, what God has been doing all along throughout history. Hebrews 11, 36-38 says this, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's, that's the prophets that God was sending. The servants in this story. James Edwards in his Pillar New Testament commentary says this, um, as, we, as we move into, hold on, I'm going to come back to that. But verse 6, Mark 12, verse 6, he's had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. For context here, we have to understand that these this, this wasn't just a story. This actually happened, that there were, there were vineyard owners, that they would have tenant owners who would come and who would tend to it. 
And they would receive some of the bounty of the fruit. But what would happen is in that time, if, if the heir um, or a descendant was no longer in the line of the owner, then it would go to the people who tended. And so now you're starting to see, oh, oh, if that's true, then, then this part in 7 makes sense. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Not only are they evil to the point where they would reject the authority of the vineyard owner, that they would reject calling to repentance, that they would uh, beat and kill the servants, but they see this as an opportunity to seize what they want. These are evil, wicked, unrepentant leaders. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Edwards, in his commentary, says this, The son differs from the slaves in several important respects. They are many. He is unique. They are hirelings, perhaps even themselves property. He is the heir. They are forerunners. He is the last and final word of the father. Above all, the son is beloved. The word recalls Abraham's love for Isaac, Jacob's love for Joseph, God's love for Israel, and especially the father's love for the beloved son at the baptism. The reference to the beloved son in the parable recalls only one other relationship in the gospel, that of Jesus and the father. In the story of the sending of the son, Jesus is speaking of his own unprecedented role in the history of Israel. It's crazy. Like, it blows my mind. You have evidence of how they've mistreated and abused the people that you've sent. Why, what would make you think that as you send the son, they're going to treat him differently? And yet, the faithful, compassionate kindness of the vineyard owner says, I do have one more. Maybe they'll listen to him. Maybe one of them will repent and change. And so what does he do? He sends the son. This is the answer to the question that they asked. Who are you? Whose authority do you have? And he's answering them, I have the father's authority. I am the son. If you would just repent and believe, you would know that. And that knowing would give you life. Instead, all you're doing is heaping judgment upon yourself by rejecting every servant and the son that was sent. So they took him and they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What's he going to do? We talked about the compassion of the vineyard owner. But we also need to talk about the righteous and severe judgment of the vineyard owner. He is right in judging those men as evil and wicked. What should have happened was they should have tended to the vineyard. There should have been fruit. There should have been this growing, beautiful thing. And yet they had abused it and treated it wrong. It's not lost on me that 
I stand up here as a pastor to preach this sermon. And so pray with me and for me that God would continue, when He calls me to repentance, I would repent. And that when He calls us to repentance, we would repent. That we would be that people that would lead in that fruit, saying, yeah, we are messed up, but we have a great Savior. Because it's very easy for people in positions of power to, to cling to that, to hold on to that, to not want to give that up. But what you see here. What will the vineyard owner do? In verse 9 it says, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Uh, Many of us have been hurt. Probably all of us. Some of us have been hurt by people that we respected and trusted. Some of us have been hurt by people that were actually put in authority over us. Some of them were even religious authorities over us, and they have hurt us, they've abused us, they've, been, they've walked in, in sin. And so, I want you to know that you have a God who sees that and knows that, and, and, and hears it. But what He doesn't do is He doesn't come and abolish the authority, He comes and takes away the people who are abusing that authority. And He gives that authority to another. And so today, if, if maybe that's you, maybe you've been hurt and maybe you, you're just wrestling with that, the authority is good. The authority is put there by God to tend to the, the vineyard so that it would grow and produce fruit. It's, it's what he, in, he invited us into. But there's a caution, like we need to be really careful. We need to pay attention to what God's saying. We need to walk in repentance when He calls us to it. You see, these religious leaders in the temple at this time, they had generations of God calling them to repentance. They could look back and see Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah. They could read the scroll of Jeremiah. They could read all of God's Word to His people, calling them to repent and believe. And yet, they're walking in their own self-righteousness. This particular people even had John the Baptist. Like, everybody knew John the Baptist. It's not like you had to go back to hear what your fathers had to say. You heard about John. He called you to repentance. This Jesus who's coming to you is calling you, and even through this story, one more time, saying, if you would just repent and believe, I have mercy and grace for you. And yet, we can look at the end of the story and see that this people left him and went away because they knew the parable was about them. There's a righteous and severe judgment that he would come and he would destroy. Isaiah 5, 5 through 7 says this, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed or briars or thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Listen, anyone who came before Jesus who walked in any sort of righteousness was not walking in their righteousness. 
They weren't executing perfect justice on their, uh, in and of themselves. They were forerunners of the one who would come and execute perfect justice. Perfect, lived a perfect righteousness on their behalf. They were walking by faith even before Jesus would come. Abraham is attributed to, to being a man of God because of his faith. Because of his trust, his dependence on who God was. And so, this, Jesus, God's looking at the vineyard and he's looking for justice. But behold, there's nothing but bloodshed. He's looking for righteousness. But behold, there's an outcry. We need someone who would walk in perfect justice and righteousness. And so what did God do? We go back to the story. He sent the Son. Listen, in this story, you can think that, oh, it's the, it's the evil uh, tenants who killed Jesus. But the reality is that God had a plan from the very beginning. And while it was the evil tenants who killed the Son, while it was these same men who, uh, in, in the week to come, will crucify Jesus, will call for His death, and are even plotting now, trying to scheme and f- figure out a way to kill Him, While that is true about who they are, it was not their action that killed the all-powerful, mighty Son of God. It was God Himself sent the Son with the foreknowledge that that it's not going to have a different, not going to have a different outcome. They're going to kill Him. They're going to reject Him. They're going to spit upon Him. But, But in Him, in this one, I'm going to establish my plan that I had from the very beginning. A plan of justice. A plan of righteousness. A plan of mercy. A plan of grace. In Mark 12.10 it says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The question we ask is why would God send the Son? Why would He do that? It doesn't make sense. It's absurd. And it's the question that Jesus is answering at the end of the parable. Listen, the the stone that was rejected by men has become the cornerstone. This is the gospel truth. This is the gospel of grace. That you who could not walk in righteousness, I've walked in it for you. You who could not bear the, the wrath of God, I've borne it for you. If you are in Christ... The payment and the punishment and the death that he died is for you. So we rejoice in that. Like it's absurd, but it also makes us say, the Lord's doing, it's marvelous in our eyes. It's amazing. This is amazing grace. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Talking about the suffering servant. Talking about Jesus. He was not blindsided by, by our sin. By our killing his son. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Like when we think about the son that was sent, we probably key up John 3.16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Even this proclamation, even this story to the religious leaders at the time is calling them to believe in the Son. It's, it's, it's a forbearing of God. These men deserve to die. They, men, they deserve to be destroyed right now. And yet Jesus is giving them a message of hope and trust and belief in who he is and what he's going to do. This is what God has done for us. And so today, he would call us to the same things. He would call us to repent. Repent for where you have been trusting in your own ability. Trusting in your own wisdom, your own discernment to, to figure out how things should work. Trusting in a righteousness that, that you think that you've done, where you sit and, and the things that you're good at, you judge others against. And then the things that you're bad at, often we'll just say, oh, they're not that big of a deal. And so we have this sliding scale. And yet when we're compared to the righteousness of the vineyard owner, the righteousness of God, we fail. And so he sent the son. The best news. Like the best news. As crazy and absurd as it is, it's marvelous in our eyes. We rejoice in the hope that we have that Christ has come, that he's atoned for our sins, that he's made us alive in him, and now we can go and walk in his righteousness. Not for our sake, but for the sake of his glory. You see, the glorified son is where we finish. We place our hope and our trust in this one. So we repent of where we have trusted in other things and we believe that this is the best news that we're going to hear. And you know what? How do we know that we believe that? We're going to talk about it. It's going to, our whole life is going to revolve around this thing. It's not like we compartmentalize these things, but, but in the, tomorrow when I go to school or when I go to work, now listen, you don't have to, that doesn't necessarily need to be the first thing that you tell somebody, but eventually they got to get there. Listen, I was super convicted about this. I was talking to a guy the other day, and it's the second time I talked to him, and, and I assumed that he knew that I was a Christian, and he said, I didn't know you were a Christian. I'm like, man, he should know. Why doesn't he know? Do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if that's true, does that love then propel me to tell my brother or my neighbor or the guy I just met the best news that I have? And no. So we repent. We say, God, would you do that in me? God, would you forgive me and thank you for the opportunities where I have been bold because I know that's not of me. Would you do that in me? Would you do that for the sake of us? That we would be a people who love you with everything that we have and love others as ourselves, fulfilling that law, walking in the way that you lived. God, we thank you. We thank you for this morning. God, I know um, there's a lot to take in, a lot to absorb. But God, I pray that we would see the kindness of God that you planted the vineyard. That you have tended to it. That when evil abounds, that you would crush evil, that you would destroy it. God, that the victory that you won at the cross defeated sin and death. 
And yet, Lord, we still see echoes of that in our, in our culture, in our society, in our world. And we know that there's a promise that one day you will come and there will be no more tears. Because you will defeat it once and for all. Lord, help us to trust and believe that. And then help us to walk in a way that would point to you as our most valued treasure. Thank you that you're faithful, God. Thank you that you're doing this work in us. We trust you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.